The text we have just shared begins with the singular word, why? I suspect this question has been asked since the beginning of time, shared by all of humanity in the midst of turmoil and sorrow and fear, sadness and grief. Why? I've heard this question so many times I, I cannot count them. I've heard it in, in, in the pews, in my office, in living rooms, in hospitals, in funeral parlors. Why? Why? Sometimes I, I've, heard, I've heard it on the lips of children, and it's a way of keeping us on our toes and keeping us awake. One time I was leading a children's moment, and I invited all the children down to the chancel. I sat down on the top step, and the kids all sat around me. There was eight or nine, maybe a dozen that day, all of them looking beautiful and, and, and perfect as they were. This one little girl, maybe four, she sat right next to me. She raised her hand before I could start, and she asked, Why are we here? I said, we're here to learn about God. Why do we want to learn about God? Because God loves us. We want everyone to know that God loves us. Why are you bald? <laughs> we asked that family to leave the church. Uh, that's not true. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. It's not true. I'm thinking this morning of Bobby, who's a ninth grader. I met him at a church camp that Julie and I were leading together one summer so, several years ago. Bobby was the kind of kid that everybody liked, that everybody gravitated to. He was good-looking, smart, good athlete, all that, but more than that, he was a sweet kid, a kind kid. He made everybody his friend. By Tuesday, the camp started on Sunday. By Tuesday, he knew everybody's name. People just gravitated and loved to be around Bobby. Well, the camp went great. We came to Friday, and it was a closing campfire service, but before the closing campfire service that evening, we were going to have a big dance. And we told the kids, you know, for this big dance, don't turn it into a prom-like thing. Let's, let's just celebrate as a community of faith together and enjoy the dance and start dance with each other, but, you know, don't make it into a thing. Well, but Bobby, Bobby there was a girl he had a crush on. He liked her a lot. He wanted to take her to the dance. On Friday afternoon, he said, will you go with me? I'd love to dance with you a few times. Would you, would you go with me to the dance? She said, Bobby, you're, you're a great guy, but no. And the campfire service was over after the dance. Beautiful service, emotional, powerful. I, I looked over and there was Bobby sitting by himself. I went and sat by him and said, Bobby, you okay? He said, no, I'm not. Why, why don't I have any friends? Why, why, is, why does it seem like God is against me? Why, Glenn, why? Uh, you might be thinking he's just a ninth grader, but if your heart's been broken, I don't care if you're 15 or 25 or 75, a broken heart hurts. And that why question hung over his very heart. Not too long ago, still in Kansas City, I sat over a cup of coffee with a friend. Two weeks before our coffee appointment, she had delivered a stillborn baby. On, on the day before she was due, she noticed there was no movement, and she knew in her heart that the baby was already gone. Over coffee, she looked at me, she said, every day since that day my baby was born, I've asked why, 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 and don't talk, Glenn. She said, don't talk, don't answer, don't give me a theological this or that or something else. I just got to sit in that question. I just got to sit in it. I don't know what else to do. 
We might think that these questions are, 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 are contemporary only to us, but they've been spoken since the beginning of time. Even our own sacred text reflects the, the way this question hovers over almost all of humanity. Consider the story of Job. It is the oldest story in the Bible. It probably came into being 5,000 years before the time of Christ, long before any of the sacred words were written in our texts. There was this story of Job, of this amazingly powerful and wealthy man. The Bible says that he was holy and blameless. That means literally without sin. And then out of nowhere, out of nowhere, his children are wiped out in a tornado. All of his belongings, all of his wealth stripped. He loses everything. And then to make things worse, he's covered from head to foot in a terrible disease that creates these painful boils that are oozing and sore and awful and ugly. And what does he do? He asks why. Why? His friends come to see him and they sit with him for a few days and then they say, well, Job, and this was sort of a reflection of the theology of the day. Job, if you've experienced some terrible things, obviously you've done something wrong. And he shakes his fists against his friends and says, you don't understand. That's a lie. I've done nothing wrong. I've done nothing to deserve any of this. And even in the text, he shakes his hand at heaven and he demands an audience with God. He wants to know, come and stand before me. He curses the day he was born. He uses language that we can't use on a Sunday morning. It's there in your text. Why? Even our own Christian faith has a story that is similar. It's in Matthew's telling of the crucifixion. Jesus is on the cross, breathing his last breaths. And in an agonized voice, my God, my God, why? And heaven is silent. Although I, I recall a beautiful scene in, in the movie The Passion of the Christ by Mel Gibson. Maybe you remember seeing it. Theologically, I would give it a D at best. But I give it a grade that high because of two scenes. One is, is as Jesus breathes those words, my God, my God, why? The camera turns its focus upon the sky toward heaven. The clouds, the dark clouds are formed and a single raindrop, a tear really, from heaven falls upon the cross. And then the camera shifts to the face of Mary, his mother, a woman who in the, in the film almost says nothing, only through her face and her body language does she communicate her grief. And you can see her mother standing there at the foot of the cross where her baby, her boy, is being taken away. This question of why is a part of our world that has been there since, since the beginning of time. The text that we read earlier is a text, you may have noticed it as Ron was leading us in it, has some rather difficult language and some difficult ways of describing God. But we can kind of understand if we know the full story. The, the text opens by saying, why do the nations conspire? Why do the kings go against God's ways? The, the ancient poet is wondering, why is it that we've constantly, we Israelites, have constantly been destroyed and defeated over and over and over again? Well, there's a little bit of a geographical explanation for that. It's not very satisfying, but it helps us to understand why this has happened. The nation of Israel, as you recall, is located on the eastern shore of the Mediterranean Sea. It is literally located at a place where the crossroads in antiquity, in the ancient Middle East, 
crossed just north of Israel. If you were going to conquer any part of the world, that part of the world, you had to be able to go through Israel down into Egypt or from Egypt up through Israel to go east into Asia or west into Europe. And because of that, that little strip of land became geographically very important to whatever conquering army was going north or south, east or west. You had to control that space. And so constantly, Israel is destroyed back and forth, back and forth. One time it's Egypt, then it's Babylon, then it's Syria, then it's Greece, and then finally in the time of Christ, it's Rome. And so we can kind of understand the way the, the poet is saying, oh, someday, someday we're going to be in charge and the nations will bow to us and they'll kiss our God's feet and if they don't, boy, they're going to be in serious trouble. We can kind of understand that. Consider, for example, the city of Megiddo. Megiddo is located on the northern end of Israel. It was at times not associated with Israel and other times it was under Israelite rule, probably in King Solomon's era, maybe in a couple of kings after him. But Megiddo was literally at the pinpoint of the bullseye. It was right there where the crossroads meet. Julie and I were there three years ago as we led a trip to the Holy Land. Our group that's going in October will go and visit that spot. It's unbelievably beautiful. It's not too far, very, very, very close to the Mediterranean Sea. You can feel cool breezes coming off of the Mediterranean. If you look towards the east, it seems as though the Valley of Jezreel just extends off into infinity. It's unbelievably lush and fertile. Uh, they, that little joke that our guide told us was, go find a fence post, stick it in the Valley of Jezreel, and a tree will bloom right there. That's, that's all it takes. It's such fertile and, and beautiful land. Imagine Los Angeles without the traffic. That's kind of how it is. Just this perfect place to live. And yet, because they're at that crossroads, because they're there, armies have continually invaded, destroyed, invaded, destroyed. 20 times at least, archaeologists have counted 20 different levels of Megiddo implying that it was destroyed 20 different times. And by the way, just as an aside here, every time it was destroyed, they would build the city on top of the rubble. Destroyed, build the city on top of the rubble. Eventually, it became known as Har Megiddo. Har in Hebrew literally means hill or mount or mound. It became the hill of Megiddo. But if you listen carefully, what do you hear when you hear Har Megiddo? Armageddon. You see, it was so much at the pinpoint of these battles that took place for so many times over the centuries, it became identified, mythologically speaking, as the place where the end of the world would occur. And you can see how they would feel that way. It's constantly been destroyed. But imagine now, imagine you're a mother. The invading armory has come. Your husband has gone to defend. He and most of all the other men are killed. The city's destroyed, your home is taken apart, and how do you explain to your babies? How do you explain? So we can understand why the, the poet would be willing to say, why do the nations conspire? Well, it may be someday, someday we're going to have an answer to this. That's really what's happening. This psalm, Psalm 2, is a, a royal psalm, an enthronement psalm. It was probably used to, to uh, uh, install the king. Every time a new king would come into Israel, they would read this psalm as a, as a hopeful word, actually, as one that says, someday we may be in charge. But here's what's really going on. From that first question of why all the way to the last verse is the question that he wants us to consider, the statement he wants us to consider. Happy are those whose refuge is in the Lord. No matter what's happening in life, 
no matter how painful it might be, no matter how difficult it might be, no matter what we're experiencing, if we find refuge in God, if we plant our souls in the very soul of God, we'll find blessedness. The Hebrew word is better translated as blessedness than happy. We'll be blessed even in the midst of all that we're experiencing. The, the poet is trying to move us from why to what now. Given that all these things happen in life, yes, answer the, ask the question why. Repeat it over and over and over again, but at some point we have to move to what now and where next and how will we then live? Frederick Buechner says, here's your life. Here's the world. Beautiful and terrible things will happen. But God will be with you always. It's a, it's a, a perfect summary of what the Bible is trying to say to us. Here is your life. It, it's beautiful and it's terrible. And sometimes we can do absolutely nothing about the terrible things that happen to us. But in the midst of all that we experience, here is God. Here's your life. How will you now live? Now, I know you might be thinking like, like I was this week. You know, if I do all the right things in my life, if I do make all the right choices, if I do all the right things, why, why should I experience that sort of life? I mean, the, the book of Proverbs, for example, kind of argues with the rest of the Bible. The rest of the Bible leaves the why question open-ended. Rarely does it give an answer. Rarely will you find an answer to that why question, except in the book of Proverbs, where you have 31 chapters of pretty good advice. If you do your homework, you'll get a good grade. If you eat your fiber, things will be fine. You know, that sort of thing. Those of you who need fiber, get that joke. I, I can see that. And the book of Proverbs is kind of like that. But somehow expecting, as I heard a professor once say, somehow expecting that because I'm a good person, the world will treat me kindly, is like thinking that the bull won't charge because I'm a vegetarian. <laughs> well, let that sink in. It'll, you'll get it in a minute. You see, terrible things, beautiful things will happen. But the great promise is that in the midst of all that we experience, God will be there among us and with us. There's a marvelous book that came out 30 years ago titled, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. How many of you read that? I bet a number of you have. Many of you have. It was written by Harold Kushner, a good rabbi, a brilliant, brilliant theologian. You know, it's kind of funny. That book is often misnamed. People often refer to it as why bad things happen to good people. And that was the complete opposite of what Rabbi Kushner was trying to do. He wasn't, he wasn't wrestling with why as much as he was wrestling with when. When these things happen, you see, what he was trying to do was move us from why to what now. When these terrible things happen, when these things are experienced in our lives, how will we live? And he tells this amazing story about a Chinese woman who loses her child. He's just a young boy. She's shut down by grief. She wants her baby back. She wants him back. She goes to the holy man of the village and she says to him, I, isn't there something we can do? Isn't there a prayer you can say? Aren't there some candles you can light? Can't, isn't there an incantation of some kind that we can recite? Bring my baby back to me. Bring my baby back to me. The holy man, though, is wiser than wisdom itself. He doesn't argue with her. He does not try to reason or explain. Instead, he sends her on, on a journey. He says to her, go and find a mustard seed from a home that has not experienced sorrow. And that seed will lead you away from your grief. 
She takes this task on. She leaves immediately. She journeys into the wilderness until she comes upon this palatial mansion. It's, it's unbelievably beautiful, large. Obviously, the people that live there are, are wealthy and strong, and she thinks to herself, surely there's been no sorrow in this home. She knocks on the door. She's welcomed in, and she said, I've, I've come to talk to you to see about your sorrow. Tell me that you've experienced none. Please tell me. And they say, oh, no. Oh, no. We've, we've, we've been through so much. And as they're sharing their pain with her, a thought occurs in the back of her mind. Because of all that I have experienced in my life, now I can minister to these in this moment and share with them, and we can share our sorrow together. She spends a few days with them, and then she leaves and, and goes out back into the wilderness to see what she can find. And she comes upon a village, and she discovers that whether she goes to be with the, the poorest of the poor or the wealthiest of the wealthy, whether she's in a palace or in poverty, she cannot find a family that has escaped sorrow or grief. But in every home, in every place, again, that voice is in her mind saying, here you can minister to them. You can share with them your story, and together you can find solace. And eventually the story goes, she became a minister to the world, serving everyone that she encountered in their sorrow and their sadness. The Spirit of the God we love and worship, the Spirit of the God that is among us even still unto this day, invites us to, yes, bring that why question, to ask it as often as we possibly can, but to never, ever, ever be afraid to move to what now? Let the why come along with it. Bring your grief, bring your sorrow, bring your fear, bring your worry, bring it all along with you, trusting that somehow God will be present. I'm thinking this morning, especially, of a boy named Cameron. Cameron was born into a beautiful family. He had some sisters that were older than him. They were glad to have Cameron along. Finally, a boy, they all smiled and said. Cameron's parents were Mike and Carla, members of the church I served. She was on my staff for a few years, director of children's ministry. A beautiful family, kind of a, a postcard family, as it, as it were. And then when Cameron was about 11 months old, he got a fever. They treated the fever, and it didn't go away. They took him to the doctor, and the doctor was concerned. This is pretty serious. They took him to the hospital. The fever was getting worse. They took him to ICU. By early the next morning, before the sun had risen, he was gone. Three days later, there were about a thousand people crammed into an 800-seat sanctuary for Cameron's funeral service. It was an overwhelming day. I was charged with giving the meditation. I remembered something Barbara Brown Taylor had said in a sermon, and so I brought that with me into the pulpit, and I, I said, Barbara Brown Taylor reminds us that the shortest, most, most uh, <clears throat> easy-to-carry-around verse in the Bible, is Jesus wept. You can carry it with you anywhere. Reverend Taylor once said, take that verse and go with you and go to, go to Baghdad, where a family continues to struggle to rebuild their lives after the devastation of so many years of war, and right on the doorway that's been blown apart several times, right on that doorway, Jesus wept. Then she said, go to South Africa, where families 
abandon their loved ones who are infected with HIV AIDS. They abandon them in the roadway, go and write in the dust. Jesus wept. And then I said, go three days ago to a hospital room here in Kansas City where a mom and a dad hold their baby for the last time and write on the wall, Jesus wept. We came that day not with answers, not with explanations, not with reasons, not with anything. We came only with a baptism, a holy baptism of tears. A couple of years later, Mike and Carla bought a beautiful home south of Kansas City, farther away from the church. They joined another church where a friend of mine was pastor. One day I was visiting that church for a conference and I saw Carla across the way and she came running over and gave me a hug and said, can I tell you a story? I want to tell you a story about Cameron. I said, yes, please. It's great to see you. Tell me the story. She said, well, I'm in this Bible study group in my neighborhood. We meet on Tuesday mornings around 10. And then we're, we've got, our views are all over the place. There's conservatives and liberals. There's Protestants and Catholics. There's Pentecostals and Presbyterians. And we sometimes disagree, but we all love each other and care for each other. And so we meet every Tuesday for prayer and Bible study. It's a, it's a cool thing. So it sounds wonderful. She said, last week, we were talking about miracles. And one of the ladies, she's a friend of mine, and I love her, but she just, she just looked at me in the miracle conversation, and she said, and there was a tone in her voice, I'll never understand why God didn't give you a miracle in Cameron. I'll just never understand that. Can I pause here, by the way? If you ever meet someone who's experienced grief, I don't care if it's the loss of a child or the loss of a spouse that they've lived with for 60 years or longer or somewhere in between, do not ever come with explanations, as few words as possible. In fact, if that woman had said something like that to me, I'd have been inclined to give her a pretty strong lecture on, on theodicy and evil and why and all those kinds of things that the Bible wrestles with. I would have gone oh, as hard as I could right then and really, really cut her down. But Carla's a lot smarter than me and much, much more spiritual. She has a deep, beautiful spirit. She looked at that friend, the one who'd said, I just don't understand why you didn't get a miracle. And Carla, in a calm voice, said, you're right. You don't understand because the miracle was Cameron. The love that he gave to me, I continue to carry in my heart and I will carry it with me in my heart and soul until I finally meet him again in the very arms of the loving God who loves us and welcomes us all. Cameron was my miracle. Sisters and brothers, here's your world. Here, here's your life. Beautiful. And terrible things will happen. But the promise since the beginning of time, the promise spoken even on this day, is that God will not abandon us, that God will be present even in the here and the now. Thanks be to God for the love and the grace given to us.